Hello and welcome to Pillar Talk, the podcast published by the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society, bringing you conversations about the three pillars of the humanities. In today's episode, your hosts Will and Ollie sit down with another of UQ's finest, Dr Begonia Dominguez. This is a shorter episode than usual, and it's hyper-focused on the issue of inflation. What's causing this current moment of inflation that's making headlines? Is it always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, as Milton Friedman would have us believe? What's the rationale behind central bank independence? And what can policymakers do to curb inflation? If you, like me, have been neglecting some of your economic studies recently, or if you're just interested in getting a deeper understanding of these issues, this is the place to be. Tune in now to hear Inflation Explained with Dr. Begonia Dominguez. Begonia, thank you for coming on to Pillar Talk. Uh, before we get into today's topic about what's happening in the economy today, inflation, interest rates and all that, what do you do and what's your area of research? Okay, so first of all, my name is Begonia Dominguez and I'm a professor here at the School of Economics of UQ. In terms of research, I work in both areas of fiscal and monetary policy. Within fiscal policy, for example, I look at uh, the optimality of taxes. How should we structure taxes so that they are more efficient? And within monetary policy, I look at, for example, how should central banks manage their balance sheets? So the period of quantitative easing would have been... Yeah, definitely. I work on a, both conventional and unconventional monetary policy. Okay, nice. Okay, yeah. so we're seeing quite large amounts of inflation at the moment, so you might see in the news. So what would you just kind of describe inflation to be and why is it such an important topic of discussion? Well, let me start from the last part. Why, why is it important? Well, because most of our salaries, your wa- the wages of you guys, the wages of your friends and family, they are fixed in nominal terms. This means that as prices go up, inflation is the rate of growth of prices. That means that those nominal wages are going to be losing purchasing power. You are going to be able to buy less with the money you've got. Okay. So... We're seeing inflation now at the moment. What are the key drivers behind yeah. inflation? Um, the circumstances that we have right now are quite unique. Uh, we are coming of a pandemic, which has been kind of a one in a 100 year event. That has created quite a lot of disruptions, particularly, for example, with the shutdowns in China, that has created a massive supply chain disruptions. As we are coming off this pandemic, turns out that there is a war <laughs> breaking out in the middle of Europe. That has increased fuel prices dramatically. So I think it would be fair to say that much of uh, quite a bit of the inflation that we are suffering is in ported inflation. But at the end of the day, because many of the intermediate goods that we use to produce stuff is coming from overseas, that in the end it comes into our local economy as well. And what about the effects on the demand side? So you talked about mostly um, the war in Ukraine and disruptions in China, 
but is there also an influence from the demand side in the economy? Yes, definitely. Uh, that can be seen quite clearly, for example, in the US economy. Mm-hmm. They had over stimulus packages that mm-hmm. have fueled the demand and have generated quite a bit of the inflation. Mm-hmm. For Australia, I think it's less pronounced. Okay. But mm-hmm. yes, why, why is that? Because the packages haven't been as strong. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that both in the sense of, say, uh, fiscal stimulus packages yeah. and also the sense monetary stimulus, monetary policy stimulus as well, or stimu- oh, in the sense of cutting interest rates and quantitative easing? Has that been a key driver of inflation now, the, the extent to which the central banks were kind of quantitative easing? I think the inflation is coming more from the fiscal side than from the monetary side. At the end of the day, as I was saying, we were coming from a very particular situation with coming of the pandemic then being hit by this uh, war, Mm. I think actually what economic theory would tell you is to play as safe and to ensure the economy even if you Mm. end up overdoing it. So actually, even if we think that there might have been an overstimulus, maybe that was the right thing to do because what you wanted is to protect the economy that when when it is going (laughs) through all these massive Mm. uh, negative shocks. Mm. So if we didn't have things like the war in Ukraine, the supply disruptions in China, um, expansive fiscal and monetary policy would have been a good thing in their absence. Well, I think that they have been a good thing anyways, Mm. Mm. but maybe they wouldn't have been Mm. translated into such huge inflation as Mm. we see now. Mm. It's kind of just bad luck in a certain certain sense with unpredictable events unfolding. I have been trying to buy a book now for several months, the book Mm. of uh, Winter is Coming by Kasparov. Mm He predicted what is happening in Ukraine. In 2014, really? he said it. Right, mm. okay. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. I've been trying to buy it. It's uh, all sold out in Australia. You can't yeah. get it. But, uh, I mean, it's not that it was so unpredictable. It's like maybe we were not looking, paying attention mm. to what yeah. was happening because this was happening, what happened in Crimea, what mm. happened. So... Putting that aside, if that had not happened, mm, I would have yeah. expected inflation to be much milder. Mm, not to mm, mm. at the moment, the RBA is expecting about seven percent mm, by mm. the end of the year. Yeah. When we talk about say high inflation, I remember say prior to this kind of current episode, there was often mentioned say the nineteen seventies as being as definitely in Western countries a period of very high inflation, mm. um, kind of the stagflation period. Um, and there's actually a Financial Review article the other day saying that there was a lot of similarities between kind of our current period and the 1970s. Do you see there being kind of, well, obviously maybe the geopolitics changes a little bit, but is this a very similar period to the kind of 1970s stagflation in a lot of respects, or is it kind of a fundamentally different time that we live in? My view is that there are risks of stagflation, but that we are not there yet. Mm. We have seen the high inflation, but I mean, Mm. we are at the lowest unemployment rate in Australia in the last Mm. 40 years, Mm. right? Mm. We are below 4%. So, and the economy has been growing pretty well, also for the US and the global economy. Part of that is coming out of the pandemic, which it it really helped growth. But we are not there yet in terms of 
stagflation, but that doesn't mean that the risk of it mm. isn't there. One thing that I uh, think is going to help is that we have better central bankers around. <laughs> we have, um, let's say, let's put it in a different way. I think our central bankers have learned how mm. to manage things. Mm. So I think maybe we are in a better position to control this and not to bring it into an stagflation. But Having said that, who knows what is going to happen in yeah. a month from mm. now, no? So what are the triggers we should be looking out for that would cause this stagflation to start? Well, I mean, if you start seeing massive unemployment, mm-hmm. uh, economy is slowing down, then <clears throat> you should be... I mean, the thing is that at the moment we have seen all this inflation increasing which is concerning. The central banks around the world, including the RBA in Australia, have been increasing interest rates, which is what they need to do. Their job is to control inflation. Some of that is going to cool down the economy. Mm -hmm. So the trick of the matter is that they needed to do it in a parsimonious way Mm -hmm. in which uh, it doesn't end with the economy bouncing back and forth, which it did happen in the 70s and 80s. Mm. On the, the pace of the, kind of the RBA now, looking at their forward kind of guidance, talking about raising interest rates, that's going to happen. Is, say, the pace of this, if you look at, say, like Eastern European countries that have actually, say, Hungary being one example, um, that have actually, their central banks have moved much, much quicker on raising their interest rates at the kind of first signs of inflation. When you look at things either the Fed or um, Bank of England or uh, the RBA have been much slower, uh, is is the kind of the pace you think kind of a correct or could they be moving much faster and raising interest rates or have held off? Again, uh, we are living in a situation with so much uncertainty that I think it pays off to go slow. Mm. So it's not super slow. One, one of the things actually that I have been vocal about is about improving and providing more resources to institutions such as the Australian Bureau of Statistics mm. to provide data Mm. on a more frequent basis, Mm. like, for example, the CPI to have monthly updates instead of Mm. quarterly. Mm. So right now, we need to wait three months to know what (laughs) inflation numbers are. Mm. What about if we have this data in a more frequent basis so that we help Mm. institutions like the RBA to make better decision making Mm. because they have better information. As Begonia says, today's economic conditions are uncertain and highly complex. If you want to be part of a team working to make sense of it all, consider FDI Consulting. FDI Consulting is home to one of the world's leading economic consulting practices, helping clients, including government agencies, understand today's economic opportunities and challenges, as well as sponsoring our upcoming policy challenge to take place on the 25th of August. FDI Consulting offer a graduate program that might interest you one that is uniquely focused on providing learning and development opportunities for graduates. For more information, check out this episode's description or come along to our policy challenge to meet some consultants from FDI. Now, back to our chat with Begonia Dominguez. We're changing tact a little bit. Milton Friedman's famous quote about inflation is always and everywhere being a monetary phenomenon. 
taught a little bit the introductory economics courses and kind of a bit of a conventional wisdom. Is that statement fundamentally uh, correct or is it important to look at that with caveat? Obviously, there will be always uh, an element, an important element of uh, mm. inflation being a monetary phenomenon, but you cannot look at that in isolation. Mm. So uh, we have been talking about how important the fiscal side mm. is mm. also for inflation. So you need to look at that mm. as well. Mm. Mm. Okay, why is it then that you think that that idea about inflation always being a monetary phenomenon has become so persistent as conventional wisdom and, say, it's still brought into some courses? If there is a lot more, it's like much more nuanced and complex picture to it. I think when I teach my courses, I always tell the importance about the horizon, Mm. how things may be true if you look at a horizon of 20 or 30 years, but Mm. may not be true if you look at a shorter horizon, Mm. time horizon. Uh, Inflation tends to be a monetary phenomenon if you look at the very, very long run. But in the short run, many things come into play, like fiscal policy or... What's the difference between the long run and the short run? Well, particularly within the topics that we are talking, in the short run, prices tend to be rigid. This rigidity in prices changes the transmission mechanism of monetary policy into the economy. Mm. You mentioned a little bit there about time horizons and short run versus long run. Another obviously important factor in monetary policy is it is expectations. Yeah. So if we just what what do you see as kind of being the role of expectations about inflation? Because actually, do they have an impact on inflation in itself? Very much. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest role that the central bank has, which is manage expectations, mm-hmm. and this is kind of the crucial aspect that we have right at the moment. If we know if we are expecting inflation to be seven percent. Mm-hmm. When you are going to be going back to your boss negotiating your wage, Mm. you are going to be asking Mm. for a 7% increase Mm. in your wage. Mm. And then your boss is going to go back and when they are setting up prices for the products they Mm. sell, they will (laughs) increase Mm. as well. So you you can see that expectations of inflation can lead to inflation itself. Mm. That's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. So that's the role of the central bank to try to control, anchor these expectations so that inflation doesn't become out of range. And what mechanisms does the central banks have at their disposal in order to be able to influence expectations? Broadly, you can think about monetary policy to be conducted into either conventional monetary policy and unconventional monetary policy. Conventional monetary policy is about open market operations where the central bank is trying to achieve a short-term interest rate. They have a target Mm -hmm. and they try to achieve it through those operations. Through that, that's going to transmit into the economy to some individuals. They may change their consumptions. Now, taking a loan, it becomes more expensive, so they delay these things. Mm. And that's basically conventional monetary policy. Within unconventional monetary policy, there are many different ranges of unconventional ones. Mm. Some are about trying to target other interest rates within the structure, so longer rates, which is going to be flattening the term structure. And others are as a form of a lender of last resort, which become very important when you go through these big shocks in the economy. 
like uh, having standing facilities where you are going to go and leave liquidity to businesses, leave liquidity, give liquidity to households mm. whenever is needed. This is uh, crucial. Another non-conventional is forward guidance. And forward guidance is actually very important because it's really helping to anchor expectations because it's about mm. providing forward guidance, telling the individuals, telling society what they are going to be doing if this happens. Yeah, You mentioned their forward guidance. I was just thinking because the original forward guidance produced by the RBA looking in the period of the pandemic was saying there wouldn't be a rate rise in their expectations until um, 2024 and that they weren't expecting inflation to kind of hit 7% as they now do expect. What kind of, say, a reputational blow to the RBA or to full guidance or to that kind of mechanism then that they can release these full guidance that turns up being turned on its head? Um, Well, first of all, I think in Australia we are fortunate that the institutions we have took us out of the GFC Mm. with no damage and uh, through the pandemic quite well. So I, I believe both Treasury and the RBA have been doing a very good job and we should celebrate where we are at the moment. So I think uh, it's easy to be on this side mm. and criticize. <laughs> they didn't see the mm. war of Ukraine coming. Mm. Did mm. they see it? No, they didn't see it. They wanted to encourage uh, to let the economy get out of the pandemic, mm. but they didn't see that that was coming. Mm. I, I think one of the lessons that we can learn from that is that when you do <coughs> this kind of forward guidance, it has to be always state contingent, not calendar mm. So all the statements given by the RBA are conditional statements. If these trends continue, we will do this. Yes. Yeah. Would you say that the predictions that they made, the information that they had during the pandemic were good predictions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be correct? I guess, again, not all of us were able to see what it was coming. Mm. No? But they could have said, look, we are not going to be increasing interest rates until inflation is... Mm. Yeah, right. Mm. And, and, and actually, they have been saying that the only thing is that they added the calendar with the war in Ukraine. It went very quickly from going below to mm. way mm. above. So, mm. What channels through monetary policy do you reckon are important to the RBA right now? Which should they really be looking at? Now we are, well, forward guidance is something that it has to be done always. Mm -hmm. But right now we are in the lift of area. This means out of the zero lower bound, Mm. move interest rates up. So we are more in conventional territory. Okay. Mm. So this is more of an area that the RBA has a lot more experience in, has a lot more power rather to control the economy. Well, but the circumstances are not the same. This is not the standard inflation that they are yeah. used to it. Okay. No. Just going back to that, what is a zero lower bound just for non-economics mm. students? Okay. So uh, sometimes it's called zero lower bound or effective lower bound. Basically, if you are going to be charge an interest rate, they cannot mm. charge you a negative interest rate. So mm. there is a natural bound is zero. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's a natural bound. However, uh, we have come to talk about the effective 
lower bound because sometimes you may not be able to hit the zero so so it's kind of like the limit uh, as low the, as it can go yeah, yeah and like the most ex- the, the most expansive monetary policy can get yeah in a certain sense right yeah do you think now because i say see, when i actually took your your course it was to talk about say zero lower bound and that's kind of a lot of what say i've studied relating to to monetary policy are we now entering almost a new kind of paradigm in monetary policy with a zero low bound and discussions about that become less important and we start getting back into more conventional territory and interest rates that are in above say looking at say, three five percent mm. as opposed to talking about always worrying about the zero low bound well are we back in conventional territory for the time being <laughs> <laughs> um okay so Obviously, now with the inflation going so high, interest rates are moving away from the zero lower bound. However, we have been hitting the zero lower bound for a reason, not only because of the pandemic. Already before the pandemic, Mm. inflation was quite low. Mm. And that's coming from the fact that actually real interest rates have been declining for decades. Mm. And then it makes more likely that we hit the zero lower bound. So mm. it may be a transitory change mm. that mm. that we stop talking about the zero <laughs> lower bound and maybe in a couple of years we mm. go back. So uh, actually, I don't know if you guys know about this, but just a few days ago, I was hosting Professor Olivier Blanchard from MIT. Mm. And he was talking about the importance of increasing the target of inflation to try to avoid hitting the zero lower Mm. bound. What inflation target? Yeah, he was suggesting that for a while he had been suggesting 4%, but that over time he set Mm. on a 3. 3. What's the inflation target for the RBA? 2 to 3. 2 to 3. And now, a brief word from our platinum sponsor, KPMG. KPMG provide a range of professional services for business, non-profits and government, including consulting on the design and implementation of key government policies. They offer two programs that might interest you, their 12-month graduate program and their four- to eight-week vacation program for students in their penultimate year. Both are fantastic opportunities for anyone interested in consulting or in building their skills at solving complex policy problems. For more information, check out this episode's description or reach out to the UQPPE Society and we can put you in touch with one of our contacts at KPMG. Now, back to our chat with Begonia Dominguez. So looking back to that long period of, say, low interest, uh, sorry, low interest rates, low inflation, and also if you think back to the GFC, as a large amount of stimulus was put into the economy then, but we didn't see necessarily the same kind of rises, at least in developed economies, that we are seeing now in terms of inflation. Why was that necessarily the case? Is it purely those supply side um, factors or why was there such a period of very low inflation? Obviously, the past 20 years going back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you touch on the GFC, you touch. Mm. So it's kind of like a two part question. So there is a term in economics that we call the great moderation. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of starting in the 1985 until now we had a period in which well not now (laughs) anymore (laughs) not great moderation anymore but there was decades of relatively smooth cycles in the economy together with very low moderate Mm. inflation 
Okay, and I think the GFC was a shock that it was completely different to what we are experiencing now. That the, the mm. GFC global financial crisis. It was a financial crisis. And that was very, very disrupting because it hit the assets in the economy. That actually created quite a lot of unemployment, even right after, not not in Australia. In Australia, we did very well, but Mm -hmm. in many other parts of the world, like in the US, they called it the jobless recovery because they recovered from that in terms of GDP, but Mm -hmm. not in terms of employment. So it was a very different situation than we have now. Like now, actually in the US, in Australia, many parts of the world, we have an employment that is at the lowest. Mm. Like in the US, in the lowest in the last 50 years. Mm. So it's... Very different. It's a very yeah. different, which is, is great mm. because mm. people have jobs. Mm. But mm. Uh, right now what we have is high inflation. Mm. Why? It's not a hyperinflation, no. but it's yeah. high. Yeah. Why is unemployment so low at the moment? Because we were coming out of the recovery of of the pandemic. So like a bounce back in we consumption, back. investment, all those mm. channels, mm. right? Thinking about so you so talk about that period of great moderation with low I- inflation. I'm seeing there's a, there's a theory of saying that if this manufacturing a lot moved to East Asian countries over that period and was, things were made a lot cheaper and ended up kind of feeding into the consumer basket that way. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a reason that, say, the fact that there was that kind of big level shift in, in production a cause for why there was quite low inflation over that period? Well, definitely. I mean, some people mm-hmm. may complain about the shift in the labour market, but we benefit from having cheaper products mm-hmm. and good quality products. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in the 1970s, a lot of central banks, including the RBA, were given independence. Why is independence so important for good monetary policy to come about? I think independence is a very crucial part of the functioning of a central bank and is transmitted into outcomes. So there are many studies that show that higher levels of independence give better outcomes of inflation. That means lower inflation. Mm. What we know is that a good functioning central bank needs to be an inflation fighter, mm-hmm. needs to fight inflation. And if it is not independent, Mm -hmm. that means that some of the decision-making is going to be driven by motives that are different. So what are those? Political. Mm, Right. So people will vote for like a party that will lower interest rates when it's not necessary or... Exactly. Just kind of... With thought experiment, kind of extending that logic out a little bit. So we've obviously done this for a lot for monetary policy and we have it kind of, to a large extent, depoliticised with obviously a, a target and, and whatnot. Looking now to say fiscal policy, is the same kind of motives and whatnot that apply for why we have independent monetary policy in central banks, also those motives still exist in terms of fiscal policy or...? Oh, very good question. Okay, so I actually, as I was telling you at the very beginning, I work both in monetary and fiscal mm. policy. Within fiscal policy, you might think about government expenditure or you might think about taxes, okay? Mm -hmm. So many of us 
study how we can have efficient taxes because there is one issue with the G because there is the understanding that a government that is more to the right or more to the left are going to have different political views mm. either when you study this from a scientific point of view you need to incorporate those views into mm. your modeling into mm. your understanding but they cannot be disengaged mm. so that is something about this g mm. that we need to be explicit about that there mm. will be some political views mm. So some people think that the mm. size of the government should be zero. Other people mm. think that the size of the government should be large. Politics kind of determines how large government is then. Yes, of course, mm. they are the, they are yeah. the ones that yeah. make the mm. policies. Yeah. <laughs> But doesn't that same kind of, maybe to a lesser extent, that political motivation, say like a left party or a right party have a certain view, mm. wouldn't that sort of still apply to central banking quite the same way or, or it's very much no. you see it as a very depoliticized field and there's yeah. more a lot more consensus on monetary as opposed to as fiscal I, i think it's more technical mm. it's no. less of a political ethical question what happens with monetary policy than it is of how much spending or how much taxes should be. i actually think fiscal policy is tremendously powerful and important like the role that it played through the pandemic to mm. get us around to help people keep jobs mm. so there are some things that as an economist we can provide principles for fiscal policy that will be devoid from political views. Mm. And there are things that we can say about how can you manage government debt, but there are certain aspects that we need to acknowledge that mm. are going to be dependent on the political views. So obviously there's a lot of weight given to monetary policy during high inflation, and especially during this time. What's the role of Treasury and fiscal, um, policy. And fiscal policy right now? Well, situations like we have now, put on the table the importance of coordination between both institutions. Right. Because what you don't want is situations in which they are undermining each other. Mm. So the importance of coordinating fiscal and monetary policy becomes crucial. Mm. Mm -hmm. So just taking it to say looking forward, obviously now we say we have this period of high inflation, uh, increasing interest rates to combat it. You say obviously very optimistic about the like, role of institutions and how they've been playing in the pandemic and afterwards. Is it the case that we see in two or three years' time, we're back to low inflation, the interest rates have kind of settled and aren't having to be constantly raised or decreased, and that we have a good growth and low unemployment? Are you very optimistic about that kind of like short to medium term, or, or are you, let's say, a pessimist? I guess many of the listeners to this are going to be economists and you understand about variance. Uh, so the standard deviations of anything I say are going to be big. No, I, I can't say what is going to happen. I'm quite worried with geopolitical issues. I'm not sure what is going to happen with Ukraine, what is the situation with Russia. I hope that gets under control. I can say I hope, but I cannot say what is going to happen. It's uh, highly uncertain as to It's highly, highly uncertain, yeah. It, but if current trends continue... I'm not sure what is the current trend. <laughs> <laughs> so, but so, uh, let, let's assume that mm -hmm. the situation becomes more under control and that there are no other geopolitical okay. things coming up. I would expect that in two, three years we would be in a more 
Mm, yeah. Normal mm, circumstances, mm. but what we have seen over the last two years, many mm. things can come up. So I'm mm, not yeah. gonna be telling you what is yeah, yeah. happening. So gonna happen if the RBA can't control inflation. Is the RBA's independence under threat? Well, I think that would be a very big mistake. Let's suppose that they cannot actually by limiting or taking away the. Independence, you actually are gonna end up in what's outcomes. So mm-hmm. shoot yourself in the foot, I guess. You are going, yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe you need to think about how can we do things better. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So what we always like to do with our guests as a final question is basically to ask them to recommend our listeners with a book and why. Okay, so I'm an economist, but I'm an economist at work. <laughs> at, a, at home, I like a painting. I like doing oil painting and I love science. Mm. If I need to recommend a book, I think I'm going to recommend a book that I read relatively recent and I loved it and maybe you guys have read it if not do so <laughs> it's uh, called Sapiens Sapiens. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, well, yeah, heard, yeah. Of it, heard of it, heard of it. Yeah. Uh, Tom's a fan. Tom's a producer. Faces lit up. I, I, was, uh, I was saying that I love science because this is written by somebody who is a historian and it's about the history of the humankind. Mm-hmm. And it's f- uh, from, uh, it tells you about the history of humankind from a very scientific point of view, providing evidence for what they explain to you. So I, I think it's a book that it's worth reading. Mm. Even for economists. Even for economists. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Bagania. No, thank, no, thank you, guys. Yeah. Nice Thanks chatting with you. Pillar Talk is published by Statecraft, the publications branch of the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. It is produced by Will Splatt and co-produced and edited by me, Tom Watson. Our music was created by the PPE Society's very own Isaac Haynes. Just a few points to clarify from today's episode. We recorded this back in June, but luckily, or not I suppose, inflation trends have remained largely the same since then. The RBA now projects year-ended inflation to peak at 7.75% in December, before beginning to decline in the new year. One thing that has changed though, just this week the ABS has taken up the call and announced that indicators of consumer price index inflation will now be released monthly. While these monthly inflation indicators won't have quite as much detail as the quarterly releases, they will provide useful and more timely insights and will no doubt benefit economic policy. Besides those brief updates, there's not much that needs fact-checking from today's episode. You'll find all relevant references in this episode's description, including a link to Begonia's researcher profile, her book recommendation Sapiens, and two Statecraft articles that touch on some of the issues that came up in this episode, namely how to tackle inflation and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's all for now. We'll be back in two weeks' time when I join Will in the host's chair for a discussion about decentralisation and the principle of subsidiarity with Brendan Markey Tower. Thanks for listening.